Today we're going to talk about family discipleship and inviting prisoners into your home. Some of you might look at that title and think, what do you mean? I am the prisoner in my home. <laughs> and honestly, I, I don't have kids, but I get it. I serve in kids ministry. It, it's wild. It's, <laughs> if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 16. That's where we're going to be today. But before we read the text, I want to give some context here. So in Acts 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's an Asian minor. He's just left Macedonia, and now he's on his way to Philippi. Now, the city of Philippi is pretty unique for several reasons. Well, one, they're probably the most Roman city of Rome outside of the city of Rome. They're incredibly Roman. And the reason why was the Roman military, what they do with these officers are they go and they conquer and they get more lands. When they would retire, one of their incentives was that they would be given land. And a lot of these officers and military generals would retire in the city of Philippi. And this is going to be important later as we're going to look at this Roman jailer. And I like to think of Philippi kind of like if Texas were in the ancient world, we'd be Philippi. Like in Texas, I'm, and I'm not a native to Texan, I'm from Arizona, so I get it, but my driver's license is Texan, so I'm a Texan, and uh, I'll retain my Arizona identity in some ways, though. Go Cardinals. Uh, but, hey now, <laughs> the, right, like Texans, we consider ourselves Texans before we're Americans, right? Like, we're the only state that can secede from the Union and all that stuff. Um, I learned that here. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing, I'm serious. <laughs> They're incredibly Roman. They are so patriotic about the Roman identity, and that's going to be huge for what Paul and Silas are going to tell this jailer. So they arrive in Philippi, and they encounter this slave girl who Paul describes as annoying, and literally he calls her annoying because she would follow them around, and she was screaming, servants of the Most High God are here to proclaim to you the great way of salvation. And so Paul, I guess, gets fed up to the point where he literally performs an exorcism, and this, this girl no longer has a demon in her. And, well, you would think the city of Philippi would be very grateful for this, but it turns out they weren't. One, because this girl was a slave, and two, because her owners got money from her telling people's fortunes. And so what happens is the owners get really upset because now they can't make any money off of her. And so what they do is they drag Paul and Silas to the city center and a mob forms because they attack them. They, they, they beat them under the, the reason was they're anti-Roman. And so they beat, they beat Paul and Silas. And here's how it describes what this mob does. Acts 13, 23 and 24 says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this jailer is instructed to keep them safely. So what does he do first? Well, it says he puts them in the inner prison. The Roman prisons, they worked, there were these two levels. At the top level, you have the regular jail, and underneath is what they would call the inner prison. It was nearly completely underground. Now you and I are thinking, okay, what's the big deal? They had almost zero ventilation in the inner prison. It was the worst place to be in jail. 
And not only are they in the inner prison, but they're fastened with stocks. When you and I think of stocks, we think of that wooden thing that you like put your head in and you put your arms in. That's not what this was. And it wasn't handcuffs either. It was actually a form of torture. What the Romans would do is they would contort your body. They would literally bend your body in these ways and then fasten your chains. We actually have records that these stocks would disable people. That if the, if the prisoner was left in them too long, they would literally become handicapped. So we see Paul and Silas are being tortured when they're supposed to be kept safe. In verse 25, their response is this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Macy always helps me with my sermons. Macy's my wife, and this is her point, so I'll give her this credit. She said, um, I didn't give you credit in the first service, I'm sorry. Um, but she wasn't in the first service, so hey. <laughs> uh, Macy was like, this was her idea. My, my life is way more comfortable than what Paul and Silas had, but I probably complain a lot more than I'm found singing. Our life is way more comfortable than those stocks, and yet I complain all the time. And what happens next, I think this is maybe the awesomest part of the story. But then in verse 26 to 20, it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So this earthquake breaks these stalks off these men, opens up the jail cells. For some reason, they don't run. We don't know why. But then the jailer goes to kill himself. Why? Well, Roman law said that if you were the jailer, if a prisoner escaped, you now get whatever their punishment was. So if there was a man on death row that escapes, guess what? You're going to die in his place. That was Roman law. And so I imagine as a jailer, if there are seven or eight dudes who are running away, yeah, I mean, like, it's probably not going to look very good. And so in the Roman society, they're very honor-shame-driven and so it was more honorable for them to kill themselves and fall on their swords than for them to go through these trials and be executed by one of their fellow soldiers. And so he goes to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. He shows mercy to this man who didn't deserve it, who's tortured him. And the jailer says in verse 29 and 30, the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think he asked this question for three reasons. Number one, he's heard the salvation that Paul and Silas were proclaiming throughout Philippi. Number two, he's testified to it with his own eyes, seeing that these crazy men obviously believe something so deeply that they could be tortured and sing praises 
to God despite it. And three, that they have a God who can literally shake the foundations of the earth. And this dealer says, I want to be a part of that. Today we're going to look specifically at these next four verses, Acts 16, 31 to 34. And we're going to see Paul and Silas disciple this jailer, which is cool. But the coolest part of this story is that this jailer in turn disciples his family. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read 31 to 34. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's look at just verse 31 here. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you and you will be saved, you and your household. Real quick. Does this mean that if this jailer accepts Christ, then his family is saved? No. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that under the same condition that this man can have salvation, so can his family. That's the idea here. And we're going to look, you see the Greek down there. We're going we're gonna to look at that uh, right now. So they say, Pisteuson, epiton, kirion, eeuson. The exact same thing in English. Believe in the Lord, <laughs> Lord Jesus Christ. I know, profound, right? Uh, but there's two things, right? So this Greek word, pisteuson, believe, is a lot more than we think of the word believe. And that's what I want to talk about for a second. When we think of the word believe, we think of like, oh yeah, okay, my kid believes in Santa. It's this intellectual thing that they believe. In the New Testament, this idea of believe is so much more than that. To believe in something was to totally commit yourself to something, that you would have absolute confidence in it and then commit your life to it. And that's the idea here. And then this last part, ton kirion yeusan, that article right there, ton, that third word, is huge. Because it doesn't say believe in a Lord Jesus. It says believe in the Lord Jesus. You guys, the early church, if you've read the book of Acts, is persecuted so much. And the reason why is because, and here in Philippi, it's the same thing. The message sounds very anti-Roman. There is one Lord, and it is Caesar. And to declare that there's another Lord is to start an uprising. This is why they were, this is why they were martyred a lot of times. And so what they're saying is Jesus is not a Lord, but he is the Lord. He is king and he is king because he would come and he would conquer death like no one has ever before. That what he would do is he would live a perfect life and he would die on the cross. And in doing that, he took the wrath that you and I deserve for the mistakes that we have made. He would bear that wrath for us so that we could have life and have it abundantly. And you and I right now can stand before God in a right relationship with him, covered under Christ's holiness not because of anything you have done, but because of everything he has done. That's the gospel that's been preached to this jailer. My point here is that if we're learning about discipleship from Paul and Silas, that discipleship starts with the gospel and is sustained by the gospel. A lot of times we talk about these two words Evangelism and discipleship, right? Evangelism, you go and you spread the gospel and people believe and then discipleship is, okay, now you help them, they look more Christ-like. This dichotomy is not, 
scriptural, uh, plain and simple. Jesus didn't, some, didn't say, go therefore and evangelize and then go disciple. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The first step of discipleship is choosing to become a disciple, that you would choose to follow Christ. That is the first step in this process. And what do I mean by, if that's how it starts, then how are we sustained in the gospel? Dallas Willard says that the entire goal of discipleship is that you and I would endeavor to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. So if we're trying to look like Jesus every day, then discipleship is a lifetime endeavor. I think a lot of times we mistake that we, or we have this mistaken idea that the gospel is only something that has saved you so that you can die and go to heaven. That the gospel is a barcode so that when you die, you can show that barcode and scan and get into heaven. Is part of the gospel the fact that we get an eternal, an eternity with God? Yes, absolutely. But it's so much more than that. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have life abundantly. He's not just speaking about eternal life. He's talking about life here and now. That our lives are transformed by the gospel each and every day. If you've ever come to 101 or 201, you've heard Jessica, the children's minister, and me, the student minister, talk about how we want to engage students with an age-appropriate gospel. When you're in first to third grade, the age-appropriate gospel for you is, yes, A, admit to God that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. C, confess your faith in him as Savior and Lord. Absolutely, that is the age-appropriate gospel for a first or third grader. But Jessica separates the fourth and fifth graders from that. Because when you're fourth and fifth grade, your understanding of the gospel should be a little deeper than the ABCs. And when you come up to student groups, we separate middle school and high school. I see some new families, so I'll say this. We meet on Wednesday nights, middle school, 6.30, 7.30, high school, 7.30, 8.30, right over there. Yep, just a little plug, shameless, I know. But adults, my question is, if someone asked you what the gospel was, is your answer just the ABCs and then you get to spend eternity in heaven? That's not an age-appropriate understanding of the gospel. If we believe that we're sustained by the gospel every day, which we so desperately are, then we understand that the gospel has intense ramifications of your life today. I'll just give you two quick examples. Identity. So often we are found putting our identity in our jobs, in our successes, But the gospel makes it clear that identity is not in what we do, and it's not in our mistakes, and it's not in our victories. Our our identity is solely found in Christ, that we are a son or daughter of the king, and that is your identity. Another one would be, if I can find it here, feeling alone. I think isolation is a huge issue that we have right now. But the gospel says, you are never alone. Since you have believed in Christ, you are never alone from that moment on for the rest of your life. Not only does the Holy Spirit indwell you, that you have the presence of God with you everywhere you go, but also saved you to a people. To be a Christian not tied to a church is an oxymoron. Like you can't, like this just doesn't work that way. God didn't save you and leave you there. He saved you to a people, and that people is the church, and he calls the church his bride. We are never alone. The gospel tells us this. And my point, you guys, is that the gospel didn't just save us, but it sustains us every single day. And then what Paul and Silas tell him next, here in verse 32, is, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
Now, this is subtle here, so you got to catch it, right? So, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They've moved locations. They've gone from the jailer on his knees asking for salvation in prison to now they are in his house with his family. So what this jailer has done is he's taken Paul and Silas out of prison and he's brought them to his house. This is grounds not only for getting fired, but for imprisonment and death. That's what's on the line here. Why? And I'm not a dad yet, thank God, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Uh, You city church people are crazy about your kiddos and babies and all that. Um, Thank you, Lord. Again, I just want to thank you again. Um, Sustain me in that way. Uh, (laughs) I'm not a dad, but I know that dads feel this immense pressure to provide for their families. And not only provide but to protect. So what this jailer did is he's put the way that his family's provided for on the line and his own presence in protecting them on the line. Why? Because there's nothing more important than his family hearing the gospel and believing in it that he realizes his number one duty is not to be this Roman jailer who keeps everyone locked up, but that his number one duty is to not only believe in the gospel, but to bring it to his family so that they would believe and have life. He has a new highest duty. It is no longer to serve the emperor. It is to serve King Jesus. And to do that is to disciple his family. And that's exactly what he does. This, you guys, is why Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So often when we talk about discipleship, we talk about the cost of discipleship. This comes from Bonhoeffer in his book, cost of discipleship. We talk about how much it costs, like you have to give up so much, you have to give up your time, you have to start going to church on Sundays, you got to start doing this and that. We talk about all the sacrifices we have to make. That is not what this is about. That's a gross misunderstanding of what Jesus has just said. Do you think this businessman who found the pearl was sweating over the cost? No, he was gathering up all of his things, hoping that he had enough to get the pearl, The guy with the treasure wasn't there scratching his head, weighing if this was worth it. He absolutely knew it was worth it, and he put all of his, he cast everything in because it was worth it. This isn't about what we lose in discipleship. It's about the great, the greatest gain we could ever have. The gospel truth. A relationship with the God of the universe. We don't go in sad or reluctant into discipleship with with one another, and ultimately with, with a relationship with Jesus, it's an immense opportunity that brings nothing but joy. This dad who believes in King Jesus realizes that the cost of discipleship of his family, believing in Jesus, is worth more than his job, more than his honor, 
more than his freedom because discipleship is the greatest and most worthy duty. And here's what I think is really cool about this. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't sit there in the jail and say, okay, Paul Silas, teach me all these things. Okay, now I'm gonna go tell all my family. He, he didn't have to know all the answers. He brought them to his house and what he did was he humbly learned alongside of his family. So often when I talk to people who are interested in serving as students and they have this anxiety about, I just don't know all the answers. What if they ask something I don't know the, how to answer or respond? Guess what? I get asked questions like that all the time. It's not about knowing the answers. That's not what it's about. It's about are you willing to humbly walk with others and learn the truth together? That's what this jailer has done. He humbly, he humbled himself and learned alongside of him. There's two ways he's disciples. And let's go back to that verse, verse 32. He spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in his house. So how did he disciple his family? He put them before the transforming truth of God's word. And he showed them the gift of Christian community. Those are the two ways he's discipled them here in this verse. Parents, families, the greatest way you can disciple your kids is to put them before God as often as you humanly possibly can. The truth of God's word, his people. Parents, do you have any sort of substantial spiritual conversations at home? Is being involved in a Christian community a priority? Or does it come secondary to sports, clubs, whatever. Do they ever see you open your Bible outside of Sunday morning? Does the way you talk to your spouse reflect the love of God that you proclaim? Is there more to Christmas than gifts? Is there more to Easter than candy? When they sit next to you here in worship, do they hear you boldly proclaiming and shouting praise to the God who is worthy of it all? Or do they sit there and watch you with your hands in your pockets read words indifferently off a screen? You guys, discipleship is not a program. Discipleship, really, it's a lifetime of moments. Matthew 28, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Really, a better translation, that word poor youth and test is not a, it's, it's a, it's a parsable, so a better translation is while you are going. You don't just make disciples on a mission trip. And you don't just make disciples when you come and help servants to kids on Sunday or students on Wednesday. Everywhere we're going, we should be making disciples and leveraging moments to be discipleship opportunities, to put them before the truth of who God is. And this is where it gets so cool. Let's look at verse 33. So, and he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Do you see how instantly transformed this jailer was? This isn't just some dude who's, who's believing in the gospel. This is a guy who oppressively tortured Paul and Silas and inflicted all these wounds on him. And now he's here cleaning the very wounds that he caused. 
a complete and utter transformation in this man's life. His values and his beliefs completely transformed. And the reason why is because discipleship that's sustained by the gospel results in obedience that's driven by the gospel. When our discipleship is sustained by the gospel, and that stays at the forefront of everything we do, knowing that discipleship is not about doing these things right and these things wrong, but it's about believing in the gospel deeper and deeper every day and experiencing God's grace and living in his kingdom here and now. And he obeys. And I think it's awesome that he obeyed immediately. In the middle of the night, they would go out and be baptized. They didn't wait until the morning. They did it right then and right there. You guys, we have a baptism service coming up soon. It's April 3rd. And if you've ever been a part of our baptism Sunday, they are awesome. Like, there's no other way to say it. They are amazing. And here's why. Each one of those people who gets baptized children, students, parents, we record a video of their story and about how they've experienced the overwhelming, steadfast love of Christ and how they have seen his faithfulness in their life and how God has called them to himself and brought them out of death and into life. And you and I get to sit here and we get to soak in and experience how God has faithfully loved our community and those around us. And we get to be encouraged and sustained by the gospel. If you have not been baptized, what are you waiting for? If the jailer can do it in the middle of the night, knowing that his life and his job is completely on the line, don't let a little video stop you. Jesus was baptized, he tells us to be baptized. You need to be baptized. There's no other way to say it. Your salvation doesn't depend on it, but you just need to do it. And I can't even imagine the power of this moment that this father would lead his family in obedience. He would show the love of Christ by cleaning their wounds and that he would get baptized and in turn, I, I, he, he's baptized and then he turns around and he watches his entire family get baptized. What a cool moment. From death to life. If this little thing has inspired you maybe to get baptized, uh, we'll have elders here at the front who would love to talk to you about signing up to get baptized on April 3rd. Recap. Their discipleship started in the gospel. Believe in Jesus as the Lord. Their discipleship was sustained by the gospel, taught the scriptures, experienced Christian fellowship, and three Their gospel-sustained discipleship led to gospel-driven obedience. Church, the only kind of obedience that will last is obedience driven by the gospel. I just had a conversation with a student last week who told me, in short, the only reason he obeys is because he doesn't want to disappoint his parents. That is not gospel-driven or gospel-sustained. What happens when that child gets older? I think another reason I see sometimes students obey, actually, I think COVID showed us this a lot, that sometimes we obey to present an image. Globally, I don't know the statistics, but church numbers pre-COVID and church numbers post-COVID 
is drastically lower. Now, am I saying online people? No, there's no shame in watching online. I'm not, I'm not hating on you. Like, if you're worried about it, like, you do, I do, it's safest for you. I understand that. But what I am saying is that I think a lot of people have stopped going to church. And COVID gave them the out. It was an obedience that was driven to show an image. And that, that obedience will not last. It's pride, really. But when, our, when, when we're discipled in the gospel and when we're sustained by the gospel and when we obey because of the gospel, some awesome things happen. Look at verse 34. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, this is so interesting. You guys laughing or making me laugh. It says that he, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had been saved. He believed in God. The verse said that the whole family believed. Like, what? Is this just a patriarchal, very male-dominant society? Uh, maybe, but no. Check this out. He believed in God. Why is that what they're celebrating? Because the salvation of that family came through the discipleship of that dad. That family was saved because that dad discipled his family. That was the way that this family experienced the transformational power of the gospel. He's the one who put his job on the line by bringing them into his house and his life, really. He's the one who exposed them to the transforming truth of Scripture, not by teaching it, but by putting them before teachers who would He's the one who led his family in obedience by showing Christ's love and washing the wounds that he had inflicted and by getting baptized immediately on that night. And he's the one who began the celebration of what has to have been the most glorious day of the history of his entire family. Discipleship includes celebrating the growth and grace that God gives. If you're ever around Heath Gallimore, you'll, you'll, you'll heard him say this. He tells me this all the time. He goes, hey, did you celebrate that? You need to celebrate that. Celebration's a discipline. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I get it. And what he means is when, we, when you and I think of spiritual disciplines, we think about prayer, fasting, reading our Bibles, going to church. But celebration's a discipline. God commands you and I to celebrate. God has made you and I people of pleasure, and he is intended for us to enjoy said pleasure within the bounds that he has given it to us. He wants you and I to celebrate. And I think the reason why you and I, well, maybe you're great at it. The reason why I think I'm terrible at it is because we're in a society that's incredibly forward-thinking. We're so forward-thinking. Think about jobs, right? You have your quarterly reviews, and you look at, okay, do we meet the goals this semester? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, what are next semester's goals? And that's it. There's no celebrating of the victories. And part of discipleship, you guys, is celebrating the victories. Do you celebrate God's faithfulness when you see the fruit of obedience in, the, in your children's lives, in your family's lives? Celebrate. We talk about disciplining a lot, but I don't think we talk about celebrating very often. 
we should celebrate them just as much as we discipline them. If they're like, if that's even, right? I mean, maybe they're not obeying at all, then maybe not. But if they are, should we not be celebrating the fruit when we see God's faithfulness working in their lives? And I think when we fail to celebrate, we do a disgrace to the growth and grace that God has given. We breeze by it like it's nothing and we take it for granted, looking ahead, always wanting more and more and more. Is part of that biblical, having a holy discontentment to want to look more like Christ, to want to improve in this and this area? Absolutely. But part of looking like Christ is also celebrating. Because discipleship is far from dreadful. And it's worth more than any treasure you and I can ever find. It is worthy of you and I devoting our entire lives to discipling one another. You guys, our church's greatest need, this church's greatest need is people who will take discipleship seriously, who will take Christ's command to go therefore and make disciples, not as an option, but as a command and as a lifestyle. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, every one of you in this room, students in this room, you are told to make disciples. Are you doing that with the middle schoolers? Middle schoolers, are you doing that with the elementary school kids? Every one of us is called to discipleship. So church, who are you discipling? And who's discipling you? Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.